Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Today, uh, we are finishing up the book of Malachi. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen in back of me. Malachi chapter 4. And we'll read verses 4 to 6 in just a moment here. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I heard a gospel that sounded very loving and soothing. Heard the words grace, forgiveness, mercy. I heard those words a lot. And we like those words. You know, those are Bible words that we enjoy, we definitely want to have in our own lives. And yet, that's an incomplete gospel. It's a gospel that soothes, but it's not a gospel that saves. One of the words that I hardly ever heard growing up was this word repentance. How about you? Repentance. Now that, that word kind of stings a little bit, uh, makes us feel a little uncomfortable, seems a little intrusive, kind of up in my business, and we don't really like to hear the word repentance. And yet it's a needed, needed word. And what I want to argue today is it's a word from a loving God, a gracious God, calling us to repentance. And so with that in mind, I want to read these last three verses of Malachi chapter 4. This is the word of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so look back with me at verse 4. Malachi begins by calling us to remember, to remember the law of Moses. Now what is he referring to? This is the Mosaic law that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. Horeb is another word for Sinai. So Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. There was a covenant that God made with his people Israel. And they were to remember this. Now the word remember here means much more than just recalling to mind. It means returning to God, obeying God. Renewing your obedience to the Lord. And so this was a call to remember because they had forgotten, they had forsaken, they had drifted away from God. And so the law back then and even today has a function. So I want to just give you kind of the fourfold function of the law. It's to show us God's holiness, to expose our sinfulness, to show us what's required of us, and ultimately to point us to Jesus. Let me just kind of walk through those one by one. The law is meant to show us God's holiness. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So, so God's word is, is holy. It represents who he is. It's his nature and his character. 
And so when we look at the law of God, we ought to come face to face with his holiness, that he is distinct, that he is set apart, that he is different. This rubs against the world and it ought to. It's coming from God himself. So the law is meant to show us God's holiness. Second, it's to expose our sinfulness, to expose our sinfulness. Romans 7, 7, Paul writes again, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So as we, as we take in the word of God, as we honestly read this, it is reading us. It's exposing to us that we don't live up to the law of God. Heard it once said that the law is like a light. It exposes the ugliness of our sin. It's kind of like walking up to your attic or maybe your basement. It's dark and you've got a flashlight. You're finding your way around and you see all of the, the dirt and the, the mess and the, the cobwebs. And you realize that this flashlight, it can expose what's there, but it can't clean up the mess, right? That's the same with the law. It exposes our sin. It can't clean our sin. It can't clean us up. The law also shows us what's required of us. As we look into the word of God, it shows us what God expects of us. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something shocking. In Matthew 5, verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect perfect. So this is what the law demands, is that we follow perfectly what God has said to us here. So again, it it shows us what's required of us. And this is not just outward behaviors. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So he's, he's going deeper into your heart motives. He's like, you can't just fake your way through this. This is about your heart and your motives. James 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So you might think, well, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of obeying God's command. Oh, really? If you fail at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of the commands. And we all fail at loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the law exposes us, shows us what's required of us, and ultimately points us to Jesus. In Galatians 3, 24, Paul says, so then the law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. A tutor, I don't know if you've ever had one. Someone who's a teacher who kind of helps to oversee children's progress to train them up. The law trains us, kind of keeps our sin in check and points us ultimately to our need for a savior. Now that's the function of the law But the people in Malachi's day, just like we, we weren't obeying it. We aren't obeying the law of God. Just like the people of Malachi's day, we have this half-hearted devotion at times. Remember, if you've been with us now over the past several weeks, we've seen a few things. Let's just kind of recap their half-hearted devotion. Number one, they they just forgot that God had loved them. They were actually questioning God's love for them. And God reminded them, hey, look at the life you have versus the life you deserve. You deserve to be punished for your sin. And I've made a covenant with you. I will continue to love you. I will not forsake you. And secondly, they were serving God, a holy God, their leftovers. As, as you recall, they were just kind of giving to God 
uh, the worst of what they had, not their best. The sacrifices that were blemished, the food that was polluted. Thirdly, they were unfaithful to their marriage covenant, as we saw. Many were divorcing and marrying foreign wives and spouses and forsaking even one another. And last week we saw that they were just complaining. Even though they had been blessed by God, they were starting to look outward at the pagans in the world around them thinking, well, they have it better than we do. And they were comparing themselves and growing cynical, thinking this was a perceived injustice of God. So this half-hearted devotion. So Malachi's saying, you've got to remember the law of Moses. And yet they, they can't. They, they, they keep forsaking it. They keep failing to obey it. So what's God going to do? Well, he sends prophets preaching repentance. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Malachi is in those long line of prophets. And their job was to call God's people to repentance. Now he could have, God could have left us stuck. Stuck in our sin and headed for destruction. And yet in God's kindness, he says, I will send you, I will send you, I will send you prophets, people who are going to call you to repentance. Have you ever thought of it that way? That when God sends someone into your life, a pastor, a friend, this church, and calls you to repentance, that's a mercy from God. That he didn't let you keep drifting in your sin. This is God's gracious call to repent. But oftentimes we, oftentimes we, we look at it like an unwanted guest. Why are you here? Why are you getting up in my business? Seems a little intrusive. Or do we ask God, send me, send me Elijah, send me your helpers. Send me people in this church who can help me make progress in my faith in Jesus, especially when I'm stuck and I need help. So I will send you is God's gracious call. Now, who is he going to send? Well, he says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. Now, that doesn't make any sense because Elijah, if you remember your Bible, he was all the way back in Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. So what are you talking about, Malachi? Elijah is in heaven. How are you going to send him before the great and awesome day of the Lord when Christ returns? And so as we, as we look over the rest of the New Testament, we see right away in Matthew, the next book over, who this Elijah is. Before we get to Matthew, in Luke's gospel, it points this to us even more clearly. In Luke 1, 17, uh, Luke writes this. He says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about this character, John the Baptist. So here we see that Malachi is prophesying this man who's coming like Elijah came, calling people to repentance. And what we see in the New Testament is this is John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, Verses one to four, Matthew writes, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea 
Repent was his message in one word. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he and Elijah kind of shared the same Grizzly Adams kind of persona. They were a, a rough rough group of guys here. They, uh, they dressed alike. They talked alike. They were calling people to repentance, and yet they were fearless. They were courageous men. So the ministry of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was to call God's people to repentance. And we need to be called to this same thing. Some of us here in this room, we need to repent of our rebellion. Some of you are living an autonomous life. The word means a law unto yourself. You're not following what God's word says. You wanna do what you wanna do, with whom you wanna do it, and how you wanna do it. It's, It's kinda up to you. You're living a life however you want. And you're kinda stuck in this pattern of openly defying God. And yet you're coming here. You're you're wanting a little shot in the arm, so to speak, an inspiration for the week, and yet you know right now in your life, you're living a life of rebellion against God. And, And he's calling you by his grace to repent of your sin, to come to him honestly. Some of you are not in rebellion. You need to repent of your religion. Now hear me. You don't see your sin but you judge others for their sin. You're comparing yourself, aren't you? And and you're trying to live by this system of obedience to where you feel good about yourself at least, enough to where you can get by and in the end, God's gonna stack up all your good things and surely they're gonna outweigh your bad. You see, some of us are more like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son and some are like the older brother. Some of us need to repent of our rebellion against God, and some of us need to repent of our religion, our acts for God. We cannot come to God based on our religious acts. And so Malachi, along with all these prophets, including John the Baptist, are calling God's people to repent. Now what happened when they preached repentance? The call to repentance was often met with resistance. The call to repentance is often met with resistance. It happened then, it happens here today. We don't want to repent. We don't want to turn from our sin. Made me think of the parable in Luke chapter 20, the parable of the wicked tenants. Let me read these words from the mouth of Jesus in Luke 20. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the ten saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So let me explain this parable. So this man, he plants this vineyard. He rents it out to these tenants, these vine growers. The owner leaves for this long journey. He sends a slave. He sends one to, to kind of collect his percentage of the harvest of the crops. And this servant is beat up and sent away empty-handed. He sends another and another same thing. What shall I do, the owner says, and you would expect the answer would be, you better get revenge. I mean, you're sending servant after servant, you're getting no percentage of the crops, it's time to have justice happen here. But that's not what we see in the parable, right? What does he do? Instead he says, well, I'm going to send my beloved son. Surely they will respect him. And of course, we know this is pointing to Jesus. So he sends his son, and what do they do? Well, I want this land to myself. This is our opportunity. This is the heir. Let's kill him so we can have it to ourselves. And he's telling these religious leaders, he's prophesying, Jesus is, this is what you're going to do to me. You don't want me. You don't want to repent. This long line of prophets has come to you calling you to repentance. I have come as well as the beloved son and still you won't listen. What do I have to do? And finally we see the response after they don't listen and they kill the son. In Matthew 21, verse 43, it says this, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So listen, if you want to continue to rebel, and not to repent, and not to turn to Jesus, you won't enter his kingdom. He will give it to those who are bearing the fruit of repentance. Now what is repentance? It's probably good for us to define this word. This was a definition by Sam Storms, I forgot to write his name down. Repentance involves heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition, over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. So a few different elements of repentance, and I'm just gonna add a few here. You gotta be humbled and sad at your sin if it's truly repentance. Some of us wanna just continue on in it. We've gotta be sad and humbled by it. Secondly, we wanna make amends for it. Right? If we truly are moving towards repentance, we're going to make amends for what we've done. And we want to accept the consequences. We don't want to blame shift, but we're accepting the consequences. Also, we feel the depth of the pain we've caused to God and to others. And then, like it says here, we change our behavior. We want to move towards God in a God-honoring way. And so I'm asking this question why is repentance met with so much resistance? Maybe even, if you're honest right now, you're like, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't even wanna, I don't wanna even go there. I, why is this 
something we resist. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to give you the top five reasons we don't repent, all right? These are my top five. There are many more we could probably list. So here's the top five, beginning with number five. Reasons why we don't repent. Five, we don't see our sin. That's the first one. How do we repent of sin if we can't see it in the first place? So, so maybe you're here today, and you're not yet a Christian. And, and it's hard for you to see. You know why? Because the scriptures say that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded your eyes from, from seeing your sin and from seeing Jesus. So I'm even praying for you right now that you would be honest and be able to say, hey, I know that I have sin in my life, and I can't hide anymore. I need to see it and be honest with it. Some of you here are believers in Jesus, and you still don't see your sin. I still don't see my sin. There are times where we got a, a plank in our eye, right? And we can see the speck in other people's eyes, but we can't see our own sin. You know what the plank is that Jesus is referring to? It's self-righteousness is our plank. Oh, we're really good at pointing out everybody else's flaws and sins, but when it comes to our own, wow, that's another story. Funny story, I've shared it before. Back when one of my girls, I couldn't remember which one, was like eight years old, we were all gathered together for, for supper, having spaghetti that night. And I remember turning to one of my girls and saying, you, you better change because you got a white shirt on. I mean, when we eat spaghetti, chances are, you know, you're going to spill. Or... And then I looked down at what I was wearing, a white shirt. Yeah, there was some laughter, but there was some <laughs> shame on my face, like, whoa. We often parent with a plank in our eye, don't we? So we need to see our sin. That's the reason why we don't repent. Number four, we feel like we're in too deep. Some of you think, well, I can't turn around now. I'm in too deep. Like, even if I tried, I would feel so much shame. God would never accept me now. So I'm just going to keep this to myself. I'm in too deep. Third reason why we don't repent. We think it will take away our joy. We, we actually think that if we move towards repentance, it will steal our joy. Like God's some kill joy. Like holiness seems boring. So why would I want to do that? And in reality, what you love is the world. You like your sin too much. You've made friends with your sin. And you think that it's bringing you joy. It's making you more and more empty. Turn from it. Number two, reason why we don't repent. We fear being exposed. I think this is a really, really big one. We fear being exposed. We want to save face. Our reputation is on the line. If I would come clean with this, how is it going to affect my life and the lives of those around me? So we want the safety and this security, this standing in the community. That's a greater value than God's name. So we stay quiet and don't move towards repentance. The first reason why we don't repent is perhaps the most obvious, pride. And really that's the marker of all of these reasons. That's what it comes down to, our hearts hardened with pride. And so we resist repentance. So I'm asking you the question, 
what's got to happen then? In order for us to move towards repentance, how will we push through that resistance? Well, I want to say it's got to come not from ourselves. It's got to come from Jesus and what he did for us. And so look at what he's done for us in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we see this incredible declaration from Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Note that. They broke that. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Notice the intimacy of the covenant of love he makes with us. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is internal. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Notice, when we've got this new heart and this new spirit within us, God our helper is going to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said to us. John 14, verse 26. He's going to write the law of God on your heart. This is what's got to happen in order for us to move towards repentance. It's this new heart, this new life. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. We see these words. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Notice who's doing this. I will give you, I will put this within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, there it is, the resistance from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So God is the one, he's taking the initiative. So listen, even right now, I'm praying for some of you in your seat, that you be awakened, that you be made alive by Jesus, and his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the gate, grave and he call you to new life and give you a new heart to say, yes, I believe in you and I want to move away from my sin to turn away from it and turn to you, Jesus. Now, Paul writes about what happens to us in Romans chapter 8. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice he condemned our sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what he's doing here is this. He is showing us that we cannot obey the law. He fulfilled it for us. He died in our place, and now by his spirit, he's fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, which is namely love. So here's where this whole idea of repentance is not just about you and God. It's about a whole new beginning to where you're now participating with God in the ministry of reconciliation and making peace with others. Notice in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, how he says this, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So what he's saying here is this, there's going to be a change of the heart. 
to where you're going to want to move towards reconciliation and peace within your family, within your church family. This is not just vertical repentance, this is horizontal. This is reconciliation. Listen, if you get the gospel, you're gonna be a repenter and a reconciler and a peacemaker. God is interested not just turning our hearts back to him, but back to one another. So what he's after here is corporate repentance. Are we ready to repent of our sin? Are you tired of being stuck in it? Of your sin individually and how it's affecting other people in your family, in this church family? Are we ready just to come clean with that and say, I, I'm humbled by my sin. And honestly, I want you to know there are ways where I feel like I have failed you as your pastor over the course of this pandemic. I wish I could have led you better. But I love you. I want to say humbly, I want to, by God's grace, move closer and closer to him. And guys, when it comes to repentance and reconciliation, there's resistance. I know there is. We don't want to take the initiative. We don't want to have the hard conversation. You know what we do? It's, it's avoidance. It's avoidance. I, avoiding people, avoiding situations, or we bring accusations upon other people. We, we're good at that. And perhaps today, if you hear the voice of God, maybe he's calling you to repent and come back to him and go to that person in your family, in your church family, that you need to make amends with to make peace. How do we know if Jesus has changed our hearts? Well, one of the evidences is that we are peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. It shows that we are truly his if we make peace, if we seek to reconcile with one another. That's revealing our identity as sons and daughters of God. Let me say this as I close. Did you notice that in your Bible, as you look at this page, maybe it's not like this in yours, but if you, if you flip the page, there's no Malachi 5. There's a blank page right there, isn't there? There's a blank page. Why is it? I, well, for one, it's the author's way of saying we're breaking now and <clears throat> the New Testament is coming, but it could be there for us symbolically as a way of saying there is time right now before the day of the Lord comes to repent. This is God's patience on that blank page to say, now is the time to turn from your sin. I've given you prophet after prophet after prophet. I've given you my own son. Would you repent of your sins? Because now Malachi's closing it up and 400 years of silence and darkness until Jesus comes. Time for you to repent. So move towards him in repentance today. Some of you, it may take more time I heard this analogy, I thought it was really good. You know, sometimes we view repentance like, 
we're walking in one way in sin, and we've just got to turn around, to turn away from our sin and turn towards Jesus. That's, that's a good analogy, but you know, that seems pretty simple and easy. And some of you might have a sin right now that seems kind of small to where, yes, I know that's wrong. Yes, God, I need to turn back to you. But some of you, you're not walking. You're biking or you're driving. Right, you're going really fast, headlong into sin, and you, you got some momentum behind you. You've been doing this for a long time in the same direction. It's going to be hard for you to slow down, to put on the brakes, to get off on that exit. It's going to be, you know, uncomfortable. Like, really, do I have to really get off that and then go all the way around and make my way all the way back here? But are you willing to take the steps right now to do that? Are you willing to say, yeah, you know what, I need help in this. I can't do it myself. And there may be some of you here in this room today, man, you're on a ship, all right? And, and this thing is so large right now, you're stuck in this enormous sin. I mean, I don't know, you might think to yourself, I'm not sure if I can even stop this thing and turn the ship slowly around. That's gonna take so much pain and so much effort, but it's worth it, it's worth it. It's worth it to repent and turn to Christ. In Acts 3, 19, and let me end with this. It says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Are you ready for God to just pour out his grace to refresh you with his love as you turn to him in repentance? He's waiting for you to do that today. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by this gracious call that you give to us here in Scripture. We deserve destruction now, but you've been so patient with us. But this is not just a patient call. This is an urgent call. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Listen and turn to Jesus. God, I pray that we would push past the resistance and you would open our hearts to say, yes, I need to turn from my sin. I need to turn to you, Jesus. And may we as a church be humbled, flattened, and then picked up by you and embraced. You love us, Jesus. This is your loving call. So I pray we'd come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.